I, I remember one time, uh, this would have been the early 1980s, and I happened to be riding down in an elevator with uh, a gentleman by the name of Peter Vitale, who was a capo in the Detroit organized crime family. And Mr. Vitale was, uh, had just been convicted on, a, uh, on an extortion case. And uh, we're riding down the elevator, and I said, you know, Mr. Vitale, I can't keep you out of jail. All you gotta do is tell me where Jimmy Hopper is. And he looked at me, and you know, I was probably in my early 30s at the time, and he was probably 70. He looked at me and he said, I don't rat out my friends. Not, I don't know who did it, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't rat out my friends. And that was the, the code that many of those people live by. It was July 30th, 1975, about 2.45 in the afternoon. Jimmy Hoffa made a call from a payphone in the parking lot of the Marcus Red Fox restaurant. Shortly after that, a car picked him up, and that was the last time he was seen. Hoping that no possibility is too remote to help find Jimmy Hoffa, bumper stickers are being distributed to local Teamsters. Hoffa's disappearance remains one of the most enduring unsolved crimes in America. And one question continues to fuel interest in the case. Where is he buried? Investigators are searching a 40-acre field in Oakland County's Waterford Township for what could be the body of missing Teamster leader Jimmy Hoffa. Every couple of years, a new tip comes in, and a new dig commences. But after two weeks of digging, they come up with nothing. One of the surest things in TV news, where I've spent over 30 years, is America's insatiable curiosity about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, we did not uncover any evidence relevant to the investigation on James Hoffa. And just so there's no confusion here, we haven't found him. But we are going to explore some intriguing new possibilities. They got south and north mixed up. It's, they were supposed to be digging over here. Yep. So the I, FBI dug in the wrong place? They dug in the wrong place. What I didn't realize until I began this project is that Jimmy Hoffa's story is so much more than a murder mystery. It's a story about a really complicated guy who would do anything for his union. It's the strongest labor organization in the world, and the members are the first ones that'll tell you that. Hoffa's life was a rabbit hole of dark tunnels. Start at the Teamsters Union and end up in the highest levels of the American mafia and the American government. Number 32, James R. Hoffa, Petitioner versus United States. Ultimately, those who were at one time Hoffa's closest allies would burn him in the end. And I believe he was taken here and probably killed pretty quickly upon setting foot on the property. From WDIV in Detroit and Graham Media, I'm Steve Garagiola. And this season on Shattered, we're charting the incredible life and death of Jimmy Hoffa. Episode 1, A Tyrant of a Foreman. Jimmy Hoffa was born in 1913, and he grew up fast. He was seven years old when his father died of lung disease, likely poisoned by years of work in the coal mines of Brazil, Indiana. Jimmy learned early how hard life could be on a working family. His mother moved Jimmy and his three siblings to Detroit, where she hoped to find work. When he was 14, Jimmy dropped out of school and got a job as a stock boy at a department store. And then a few years later came the crash. People were in misery. 
economic misery. That's industrial relations professor Merrick Masters. Uh, you know, you look at it, you had a third of the nation unemployed. Uh, you had the recovery which was underway then, but not one that was nearly as impactful enough to bring us back to where we were before the Depression. And people were very insecure, and they were struggling on a day-to-day -day basis. So the future looked, to many of them, very unpromising. A friend of the Hoffa family told Jimmy, you should get a job in the food business. Everybody's going to always eat. So he kind of talked his way into a job at the Kroger Company. He was 16 years old, but convinced them he was 18 and got a job on the loading dock. The voice you're about to hear next is an actor, but the words are Jimmy Hoffa's from an autobiography released a few months after he disappeared. We were paid 32 cents an hour. The problem was that we only got paid for the time actually worked during a 12-hour shift. And sometimes we'd sit around for five or six hours waiting to be called. For a 48-hour week, we could make $15.36. But the trouble was, we had to put in 70 to 80 hours to get in those 48 hours. And those were long, hard hours, laboring under a foreman who was a real tyrant. A solid gold son of a bitch. Actually, he was called a little bastard by all the men. This guy was a real sadist. He thoroughly enjoyed screaming out commands and then cursing a man and threatening to fire him if he didn't move quick enough. He was a little tin Jesus in the warehouse, and the only time he smiled was when he had fired somebody. Quickly, we began to talk union with the night crew, although we knew we would have to wait for exactly the right moment. The little bastard helped more than he knew. For early one morning in May of 1931, two waiting workers went outside to eat at a lunch cart. When they came back, he fired them in front of the whole crew. Several nights later, came the perfect opportunity for Hoffa to air the workers' grievances. Some cold storage boxcars carrying fresh strawberries had just arrived at the warehouse. Once the cars were open and the strawberries were exposed to the air, they would start to spoil immediately. Word was passed around among the men to follow our lead. We waited until we unloaded less than half the strawberries. Then I put down the crate I was carrying and walked to the other end of the dock. The rest of the 175 men in the crew put down their crates, too, and stood around me. The little bastard couldn't believe his eyes. He turned white and then red, and I thought, hopefully he was going to have a heart attack. Then he started screaming. What the hell you guys think you're doing? Get back to work, goddammit, or every one of you bastards are fired. The hell with you, I shouted. We want Mr. Bluff. Now, Mr. Bluff is the night warehouse manager. He hears this ruckus happening out on the loading docks. Jimmy Hoffa, who now is actually 18 years old, is speaking for the whole group demanding changes. He gets a meeting with Kroger management and negotiates a one-page contract. Which in Detroit at the time was a major achievement. Management agreed to work out a call time and guaranteed at least a half day's pay. They also set aside an eating room for the workers and deprived the foreman of the right to summarily fire any worker. And so began Jimmy Hoffa's career as a labor organizer. The next thing I did was to bring the men on the day shift into our little union. And in these efforts, and in the continuing meetings with Kroger officials, I began to learn the basics of union work. That when you talk to workers, you better look them in the eye and know what you're talking about, because they pretty quick can tell a phony. Word spread pretty fast to this mutinous little group known as the Strawberry Boys, 
led by a kid, 18-year-old Jimmy Hoffa. But for Hoffa, it would never be this pure again. Not long after leading that first strike at Kroger, Hoffa was recruited by a fledgling little union with a dwindling membership called the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. The union formed way back at the beginning of the 20th century. It was for men who drove wagons pulled by horses. But then came the motorized truck. Union membership began to grow, though it was still small. In 1932, there were only 100,000 Teamsters nationally, only 500 in Detroit. Hoffa's job was simple, get those numbers up. My first job was organizing the rest of Kroger's workers. There were about 400 in various other departments beside the loading dock, and I got them all. And it was at Kroger's that I went through my first strike. It was a long one, and the company, as all of them did in those days, sent a wave of strike breakers against us. We had a number of knockdown bloody battles, and six times I was beaten up, and my scalp was laid open wide enough to require stitches. After organizing Kroger, Hoffa set out to recruit big rig drivers who hauled new cars from Detroit to dealers all across the country. First, I tried to talk to them at the loading docks. But like most everybody else in those hard times, they were afraid of management and losing their jobs. So I devised a new plan of attack. I hit the highways, Route 2 to Buffalo, Old US 6 to Cleveland, US 112 to Chicago, and US 10 to the ferry at Ludington to nail them at a truck stop or when they pulled over to the side of the road for a nap. Those guys were perpetually tired, and most of them could have slept the clock around. So they had a trick of lighting up a cigarette, and then they'd fall right off to sleep and wake up when it began scorching their fingers. Usually they slept with a tire iron in the other hand. This was the middle of the depression, and it was their defense against looters and hijackers. Hustle learned how to wake up napping drivers. He would tap on the window and then jump back so he didn't catch a tire iron in the head. And then he'd launch into his spiel, commiserating over low pay, bad working conditions, no job security. But the companies knew what was going on. One day I spotted a rig parked off the highway in a lonely stretch of road. I pulled in behind it, walked up to the cab, and when I couldn't open the door I yelled, Hey, are you awake? The door shot open. Two goons carrying blackjacks piled out right on top of me. I never had a chance. They beat me right into the ground. The companies did everything they could to beat the unions into submission. And so the workers needed to muster their own strength to fight the power. I'm Elizabeth Fow. I am professor of history at Wayne State University in Detroit. When you look around by 3233, you know that President Hoover is really not helping you. You know that the government is not responsive to you. You know that the relief agency in your city has, is out of money. You know that the employers are not behind you. It's his capacity to sort of connect the dots for them, to explain to them that I too am going to go out on the line. I too am going to risk this because I believe that this is the only way we can get it done. Some of Hoffa's early power struggles were with management, but also with rival unions. Through the 30s and 40s, the Teamsters found themselves in jurisdictional battles, fighting over the same workers with the longshoremen, retail clerks, 
railway clerks, and gasoline operators. And so violence would be used to resolve that. David Witwer is a labor historian. He wrote a book called Corruption and Reform in the Teamsters Union. You would have union organizers or union officials that would be attacked by gangsters or thugs connected to the other union. And the way that would work then, you know, if you're a union official and you're subject to attack by a gangster or a thug and you go to the local police for protection, they won't protect you because the local police tend to be corrupt. So they're usually getting payments from the employers or from the local organized crime. So they won't uh, step in to protect you. Hoffa learned pretty quickly. The only way to have protection was to buy the same muscle the other guys had. So he went to the men who wielded the real power in Detroit. Labor and the mob in Detroit go back to the earliest origins of the auto industry in Detroit through, through Henry Ford. Journalist Scott Bernstein has spent his life researching the intricacies of the mob, especially in Detroit. He says back in the 20s, Henry Ford relied heavily on mob muscle to intimidate and beat up labor organizers. The mob is an equal opportunity player. I mean, they're going to go wherever the money is. If the money is to support pro-labor, they're going to be pro-labor. If the money is to disrupt labor organizing, then they're going to disrupt it. By the late 1930s, Hoffa needs protection for the Teamsters, so he starts interacting with a group of pretty notorious mobsters. Guys like uh, Frankie Three Fingers Coppola, Angelo the Chairman Maley, uh, and Santo uh, Cockeyed Sam Perone, also known as Sammy the Shark. Those were three, uh, probably the three most prominent labor racketeers in the 1930s. Guys who, for the right price, would be willing to do anything Hoffa needed to gain and maintain a foothold in Detroit labor. The Teamsters Union was always considered to be a somewhat rough and tumble operation, and uh, Jimmy Hoffa was the, uh, uh, the poster boy for what the Teamsters Union was supposed to be. He was short, aggressive, pugnacious, uh, wouldn't back down from anybody. That's Keith Corbett. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney. Was willing to do whatever he thought he had to do to uh, increase his own power and, and to a large extent to benefit the, uh, the members of the union. But he was not unwilling to sit down with the devil. Jimmy, through the years, there's been a lot of charges that you have had affiliations with hoodlums and underworld elements. Well, there isn't any question about it that I keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in this country. And the best answer in regards to hoodlums and what have you is the fact that every strike we have uh, with employers who really want to fight, they revert to hiring hoodlums. And unless we know who our enemy is, unless we're in a position to do something about it, you'll lose your strike. It was a tough balance for Hoffa. He felt he needed the mob in order to do the work he believed in on behalf of the members of his union. I don't doubt that his intentions were very altruistic when he began his rise through the unions, but I think very quickly he understood or learned where his bread was buttered and knew that the more he got in bed with the mob, the further he was going to rise and the more power he was going to attain. And at the end of the day, that's what he loved. He loved the Teamsters. He loved being the face of the Teamsters, but he loved the power. He was power-obsessed. And he was also great at what he did. 
Clearly he had lots of charisma, right? I mean, clearly he had people skills of a phenomenal nature. Like he had met someone during an organizing campaign to organize Sears and Roebuck. And two years later, he runs into the person and he remembers their name and remembers details about them. In terms of cultivating and speaking the language of and emotionally connecting uh, working class people, he, he definitely could do it. And I think what he conveyed to them was a sincere devotion uh, as a union leader. Like He would devote himself without limit to, to promoting the cause of, of his team to members. And he was obviously quite bright. What he dropped out in the seventh or eighth grade, but if you read uh, accounts of Harvard professors who are economists who talk, they think of him as one of the smartest people they ever met. In those early bloody years, Jimmy Hoffa formed a philosophy that would guide the rest of his life. Meet violence with violence, power with power. He only had one rule, win. But power comes with a price. For the mafia chiefs, it was always about access to money. Nope. The mob got their hooks into union coffers across the board and, you know, to the point where, you know, the slush funds had slush funds. And they were able to inject their presence into multiple nooks and crannies within the union infrastructure. Hoffa was building relationships that would rule and ultimately end his life. Coming up on our next episode... Hoffa and the mob. They had Hoffa doing their bidding for them. And in return, Hoffa had a pretty significant arsenal at his beck and call for anything he needed done. You know, one phone call away, it's getting done for him. Shattered is produced by WDIV in Detroit and Graham Media. Now this season, we're trying something new. It's a membership program we're calling Shattered Plus. You can sign up for Shattered Plus to hear a different bonus episode of the show this week and every week of our new season. Another perk of Shattered Plus is you have access to all of our regular episodes without ads. In this week's bonus episode, I talked to my producers about what it's been like for me to try this new medium of podcasting. Then we'll talk with Hoffa expert Scott Bernstein about the new Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman, which features Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa. Spoiler alert. I went to see the movie with Scott. I was disappointed. I thought it was long and boring. To hear that episode, sign up for Shattered Plus. Go to our website, shatteredpodcast.com, and click on the Shattered Plus link. And thanks. Shattered is produced and edited by Jeremy Allen and Zach Rosen. Ro Coppola, who may or may not be related to Frankie Three Fingers Coppola, is WDIV's director of digital and enterprise content. The voice of Jimmy Hoffa is Tony Amato. And the only time he smiled was when he had fired somebody. Special thanks this week to Jamie K. Walters, Donna Harper, Terry Turpin Amato, Vanessa Ogletree, Megan St. Pierre, Louis Kambarovsky, Dustin Block, Adam Spindler, Ken Haddad, Jordan Lippman, Paul Snyder, Natalie Kerwin, Shira Heisler, Kelly Allen, and Marla Drutz, who's my boss. And you should always thank the boss. See you next time.